We are in Acts 25 and 26, two chapters here. Always makes it a little bit more challenging to get it down, but remembering what the whole book is about, that we are witnesses for Jesus Christ. We are witnesses. And Paul is giving us a good role model on how to be witnesses for Jesus Christ throughout Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the utter ends of the world. And his goal was always to go to Rome. So he's a witness to the light of the world. He's not here with us now. He's left us here, broken vessels, but he lives within us. His spirit, the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit indwells us. And the more we can get out of the way, <clears throat> and the more we let, are more Christ-like and let him shine, and we act, behave, and think like him, transformed into the image of him, the better and brighter lights we are. So, there's a group of Jews, <clears throat> religious leaders, that have been tagging along behind Paul this whole time, for the last two-plus years. Well, 20-plus years, because he became a believer, probably conversion about 20 years ago, and he has this nagging group of men constantly on him, wanting to kill him. First, they just wanted to hush him up, but it's escalated now to the point where they really want to snuff him out. So these Roman uh, leaders, the Romans, who now had Paul in... uh, in prison, um, know, believe that he's innocent, but they got a problem on their hands because the Romans are overseeing uh, the Jews and stuff in their little community, and they allow them to have great governing of their own and stuff, but they've got to keep a peace with them. They got to keep harmony. The Jews have got to behave, and they've got to kind of coexist with each other. So these governors um, are having a problem because the Jews really want Paul killed and condemned and the Romans are finding nothing wrong with him. So we know that Felix was a procrastinator and just locked him up for two years. And in comes Festus and he inherits the problem here. But he's not a procrastinator. Two years have gone by with Paul in prison and we have Festus who was basically... excuse me, basically a good governor, okay? And he gets right on dealing with with Paul. Um, After three days of him being there, he starts working on this issue and stuff. Now, Paul is, God's allowing Paul to stay in prison pretty much for his safety, that these Jewish men couldn't get to him and, and, and kill him. So he's in protective custodies almost against these accusers. So here's Festus, the new governor, and right away these Jewish chief priests and the principal men of the Jews lay out their case against Paul here in verse 2, and they urge Festus, they are urging him, they're, they're bugging him, they're relentless in trying to get him, do us a favor. Do us a favor against Paul. And summon him to Jerusalem. Get him back here in Jerusalem, out of Caesarea, and come back to Jerusalem because we are planning, they were planning to ambush him and kill him. 
<clears throat> so they're, net, they're just hounding Festus. Get him down here, get him down here, get him down here. Relentlessly. Paul is under their skin. But you have to remember, our battle isn't against flesh and blood. It's against the principalities and the arguments that set themselves up against the truth of God. The, Jesus is the truth and the light. Satan and evil and everything else that isn't God and good is opposed to that. And this is the, this is the battle and the struggle. So as Jesus, as God moves his truth, the, the, the truth about him through to the uttermost parts of the world, Satan is constantly snuffing it out, putting it out, trying to, you know, put out the fire, whatever. So that's the real battle here. These men, these Jewish leaders, are willing to go against their own laws that say do not murder. They're willing to break their own laws to make Paul go away. And they're attempting to take advantage of Festus, who's kind of new and inexperienced, by relentlessly hounding him, hounding him, hounding him. Bring him down here, Jerusalem. We want to give him a trial. We, well, he already had a trial there, and it wasn't a fair trial. And Paul knows he's not going to get a fair trial. And also Festus knows that these men are not going to give him a fair trial. They want to condemn him without a trial. So Festus, who's not a believer, is not willing to break Roman law. The Jews are willing to break their law. No problem. We want to get rid of Paul. But this Roman governor is not willing to break Roman law because <clears throat> he tells them, in verse three, 4, Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea that he himself intended to go shortly. So he says to these men, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, Paul, let them bring charges against him. We'll have a fair trial and we'll find out if there's anything that he has done wrong. So he stays for a little while. And he moves on eight or ten days, and he goes down. The next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought in. In verse 7, when he arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around Paul, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. you got to get a picture of this now. <clears throat> Here's Paul. They probably haven't had any access to Paul because he's been in this protective custody. Now they bring him out into the, the room where they're going to have this trial. And um, they immediately swarm around Paul like a pack of wolves attacking a sheep. They want him destroyed and they're bringing serious charges. And you can almost imagine what the hate would be like <clears throat> around Paul. Oh, these men <clears throat> that were so... <clears throat> I keep bringing my mouth away like I'm taking it away from the microphone, and the microphone's coming with me. <laughs> um, I should go like this, I guess. Um, just the hate. I don't know if you've ever been around people where the, the hate has been so thick you can, like, cut the air with a knife. But I've been there, and it's just... But I've been there in the strength of God, knowing that I was okay, and yet this, this oppression, this hate... You know, you try not to look people in the face because they could kill you if they ever made contact with those eyes. But anyways, they were like a pack of wolves. But you know what? These wolves had no teeth. They had no evidence. Two years had gone by. 
two years since he was taken into custody, and they still had no witnesses, they had no evidence, they had no case. Because they had nothing, they had no case, they just had their own lies that were coming out, everything supported Paul's innocence. But it was also just blatant, their biased hatred toward Jesus and the gospel. The world hates us. It may not be this bad, but the world really does hate us. And you get close enough to them, or you hold up the light a little bit too much, or you start talking openly about Jesus, and you'll start to discover that there's a lot of hatred out there. So they're just on to him. And Paul says in verse 8, he argued in his defense, in his defense neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. Well, my, this is a pretty powerful thing Paul is doing here. Because we have to ask ourselves, wonder, how is it that Paul can keep his cool and not lash out and not be angry and not talk about these men, not start arguing with them, when all of this is coming at him. He is falsely accused. The anger toward him is just thick. And yet he's cool-headed. We can see from this that in this two-year period of time here, how he has grown. I mean, this is hot-headed Paul, isn't it? Hot-headed Paul. His growth, his maturity... Um, to the point where he can stand amongst these evil men and these accusations who just want to kill him and still have a love for them and have a grounded, patient, kind, all the fruit of the Spirit right there with him. What's going on with him? Romans 12, verse 17. He writes, Paul writes, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I think Paul learned from the experience that he had with the uh, uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees where he got them all riled up. And in verse 19 of Romans 12, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now that takes a mature Christian to do that. When someone comes after you, the, mo- the number one thing that we automatically do is get on our defenses and want to fight back, don't we? But to stay with the way he's described it in Romans 12 is, is a wonderful thing. I'm going to take it further because I think we need to know this in the days that we live in right now. We need to know this. So in that Romans 12 verse uh, passage I just read, he quotes from Proverbs 25, 21 and 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread. This is just being love, loving your enemies. If he's hungry, give him something to Give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For if you will heap burning coals on his head, 
and the Lord will reward you. Interesting phase. What the heck does that mean? It's always puzzled me until I started looking at it in this context. We're being our enemies. We're being loving to them. We're being kind to them. And the, and the, um, Solomon says here in Proverbs that we will be heaping burning coals on their head and the Lord will reward us. Put it in context and just go up to verse 20 of Proverbs 25 and it says this. Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like the one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. So if somebody's mourning and we come in and we're like, oh, we're just so happy and everything, that's just... You get a real negative emotion from that, don't you? Get a negative emotion. And it talks about like taking, taking off a garment on a cold day. I mean, there's a response, a negative response to that, or like vinegar on soda, that Have you ever done that? Vinegar on baking soda? So anyways, it's saying that you're going to get a negative response if you love your enemy and keep doing good to them, like burning coals. Well, let's take it a little bit further. If there's a physical discomfort when we do that, I mean, burning coals are pretty hot. A physical discomfort, the hot coals produce an emotion. The emotion is possibly, it can happen, a burning shame. Because if they're your enemy and they're doing bad things and you're being loving to them, there's shame with that or should be. Whoa, I'm being so mean, but look at that person's kind of nice to me. And I'm going to take it even further and dig into Isaiah 6. Verse, well, Isaiah 6 is a chapter where um, Isaiah saw the vision of the Lord sitting on the throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And And the seraphim were up there, and they were singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Burning coals can possibly, with these enemies that are accusing us, be a way to, if they repent, be a purifying, purifying them. So this idea of being loving and being a true witness of Jesus Christ in the midst of hatred can actually be a thing that turns people around and the Lord will reward you. So this, Paul, might was maybe thinking of all these things, how he was behaving might just very well lead them to repentance. But Paul kept a clear conscience because he says he's done nothing wrong. Remember, we talked about that the last couple of weeks. He had a clear conscience. And when you have a clear conscience, you can stand before God, stand before men, and you can keep 
grounded in who we are as a believer. But once we start to let the flesh come in and start grinding our teeth and saying, oh, I hate those people too, why are they doing that? Are we have a clear conscience with that? No, we're slipping. So darkness hates the light. It hates the light because it exposes their evil deeds. So it's trying to do everything it can to snuff it out. All right. So it's a good thing he was in protective custodies because he would have been killed. In verse 9, Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor now, he's got to, like, keep the peace. He's seeing this tension between Paul and these Jews. He says to Paul, well, do you want to go to Jerusalem and be tried down there for these charges? Now, whether or not he knew about the ambush or not, we don't know, but we know God knows all things. And Paul says... I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, for I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. I'm willing to pay for it. If I've done something wrong, okay, I'll, you know, I'll take what my, my due deserve. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. And I appeal to Caesar. And then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, to Caesar you have appealed, and to Caesar you will go. So, Festus is kind of still in a pinch here, not knowing what to do. <clears throat> he's walking the fence. He knows he's innocent, but he, um, he knows it's important to give him a fair trial. So he's going to go ahead and send Paul off to get a fair trial. Hate towards the gospel is very, very strong. And I think we're in a situation in the world today where, as believers, we have kind of avoided being the targets of that hate by keeping our mouths shut on a lot of things and being a little bit passive. But we need to change that. So let's continue on. He brings him. Now in verse 13, I think Festus is actually relieved because he's going to get some help to decide this case. And who does he get help from? The Jewish expert Agrippa. Now how he became a Jewish expert, I don't know. But his claim to fame is that he knows all about them. He oversees the temple. He oversees the um, appointment of the higher priest. So he might have some pretty fundamental knowledge on, on the religion and the Jews and and a little bit of a history. So, while he's there, Agrippa and his sister-slash-girlfriend, a little insensuous behavior going on there, Bernice, are arriving in town. And so while they're there, Festus takes the opportunity to share the case with him, just to bounce it off of this Jewish expert, okay? Okay greets Festus and everything. And Festus um, is there a few days, and then he lays the case, Paul's case, before the king. And he goes on, and he tells them pretty much what's going on. I'm not going to spend time reading that through there in verses 15 on. But he um, was basically saying the Jews have these things against him, and they want me to, wants him to be condemned, but they have no case against him. And I tried to tell him it's not the custom for the Jews to do this, um, but 
they just aren't listening, so here we are in front of you. They've come down, and now they're ready to kind of lay out their argument. Um, But again, in verse 7, he says, I make no delay. He's a person who does not procrastinate. He really wants to get this dealt with. And so the accusers are down there, and they're giving him his charge against him, and, you know, all these different evils and stuff. And in verse 19, rather they had certain points. They didn't have anything against him. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain man, Jesus, a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. And so being at a loss on how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem. He said yes, kept him in custody, and um, now he wants to go to Caesar. So Agrippa hears the case, kind of a, it's a dilemma. What, what, it, what is Festus really going to do? And Festus's knowledge of the case isn't real strong. He's just referring to a certain Jesus. So he doesn't really know about Jesus. But this is why we witness. This is why we tell people about Jesus. Agrippa, though, is curious about the case. And he says in verse 22, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. And so the next day, and you have to just, just, just pause for a minute here. Okay, this is Paul. He's been like in prison for two years. And every chance he gets, he talks about Jesus. That's what he does. He's a witness. And what he is about to what is about to happen to Paul is, a, is a, you, you just have to realize it's divine intervention and supernatural. Because the audience that he is going to be able to give his testimony to is totally unbelievable. I mean, there's no other way Paul could have invited these people or got an audience with the people or anything else unless God intervened in this situation. 23, for the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall, a big auditorium, with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. And then they commanded Festus that, that he brought Paul in. Pomp, great pomp. That's showy, flashy. I mean, here's Agrippa and his queen, Bernice, coming in with their royal garments on and their purple robes and they're they're walking in with their military tribunal escorting them in and and all these prominent people in the community all there to show off who they are and the importance of who they are grand parade filing into this auditorium so of course all the people are in there also to watch to see i mean this is a huge event that's taking place a breathtaking spectacle, all dressed, showy pageantry. This word pomp is only used here in the New Testament. It's not shown any other place, okay? And it's a, a fleeting, uh, showy thing. It's not a, there's, no, there's no permanence to it, and that's an important thing with this word. It's not a permanent. It's, it, it gives the a cognition of being, um, a connotation of being just a fleeting moment. 
But it's grand pageantry that's coming in, immaculately dressed, honor guards of soldiers escorting them into the auditorium. And all these important, powerful people. And when everyone is seated, Paul's brought in. Now we think, we kind of get an idea that Paul's short and bald-headed. I'm not sure where that is. But here he comes in, you know, just kind of like a... I don't know what he looks like. I don't know what he has on at this time, but he doesn't have grand pageantry on. Um, Whether he's still in chains, we don't know, but here he comes in right in front of these people, right in the center of all this. What an opportunity. Wow. What a contrast. What a contrast. If you just look at the visual of that picture, you would think, oh my Look at this grand, oh, they're beautiful and grand and so, oh, my, distinguished. And look at this guy. If you just look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. He looks at the heart. Paul is probably more noble and more powerful man than anybody else in that arena at that time. Only God can orchestrate this. So Festus has his opening statement in verse 24. King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me? That's a lot of people petitioning him, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. He needs to be put to death. But I have found that he had done nothing deserving of death. And as myself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But, this is really embarrassing, is what he should have said there, I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. To put some, send somebody before Caesar, you had to kind of say, why is this man, why are you bringing this case before me here? You know, you got to have a reason, and you have to write something down. And so I'm bringing him before you, King Agrippa, so that you can examine him and help me write something down. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner to indict the charges against him, not to have any charges against him. You can't send somebody to Caesar and say, "Uh, Caesar, I really don't know what this man is accused of, and he is probably innocent of any wrongdoing, but I thought I should send him here anyway. That's not going to fly, is it? Not for Caesar. So the stage is set now with lights to shine into the darkness, confronted with what Jesus is about to do. Can you see this? This is a beautiful stage that is set for for Paul to give his witness to all these people there. So in chapter 26, we have him before Agrippa. And let's just let you know a little bit about Agrippa. Um, His uh, family was not very kind. Agrippa, King Agrippa... Um, his father was the Herod who killed James and arrested Peter. That was his father. His, um, and later, that guy was eaten by worms, remember, when he failed to give God the glory. His great uncle beheaded John the Baptist and sought Jesus' life and later tried to, tried to get Jesus. Okay, that's his great uncle. His great grandfather was Herod the Great who tried to kill baby Jesus. So this Agrippa's got a 
some uh, ancestors here that really aren't going to see Paul in, in much of a favoritism. He's not going to be too warm toward him. But he was an expert in what's going on. Plus, he's living in sin. He's got sitting right there with his sister who he's having, you know, relations with. But he wants to hear what he has to say. So Paul begins. And it's kind of, I'm not going to go through it all, but he starts with, in his early life, Paul says that this Jewish community knows, they know that I was raised a faithful Jew, that I was a Pharisee. My early life, the way I lived was evidence of this, okay? And I remained a faithful Jew. It's just now his faith in, his faith in the Jewish um, in, in the Jewish story, his ancestry, Israel, has grown to believe in Jesus. It's an outgrowth of his trust and the hope of God's promises. What he is doing is saying it's only what I'm experiencing here is only an outgrowth of what the scriptures, of what our ancestors, of the prophets and Moses have told us. And Agrippa, you being a Jewish expert, should know this. You should know that we have this hope, and you should know that God could and would raise someone from the dead. So he's talking to them about how he was exactly probably like this Jewish community. But then in verse 9, he starts to explain that at one time he also persecuted the followers of Jesus. He strongly believed that he needed to persecute them. He cast his vote, implies that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, which is a side note, to be a member of the Sanhedrin, you had to be married. So that's the question of whatever happened to Paul's wife. We don't know. She died. She divorced him. Don't know. But he was so devout that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. And he showed great rage toward the Jewish people. For him to have that kind of great rage, now he knows that he was not right with God. Because when we have that inside of us, we don't have a right relationship with God. We can't carry that around. So he says, grew up, strong Jewish faith, so strong, he persecuted the followers of Jesus. And then in verse 12, he goes into his remarkable conversion when Jesus revealed him to Paul himself. He literally saw the light, and then he figuratively saw the light. He lived what he thought a moral life. So when it says that he repented, he was repenting of misguided religious zeal and wrong ideas about God. Repentance doesn't, isn't always necessarily a, a, we know about it, and it's a wrong behavior, or it's a, we're choosing to sin when we know the right thing and we're going to repent. Repentant also comes when we know, when we find out through revelation or something that, whoa, I've been mis, I am sorry, God, uh, that I have lived, thank you for opening my eyes up and revealing to me now what's going on. There's still a need to repent, to acknowledge that we were off, okay? Remember what the psalmist said. He asked God, keep me from willful sin and forgive my unknown sin. There's things that we do. It's a holy God. There are things we do that we don't even know they're sin. So anyway, so he repents. He has this miraculous conversion. 
And then Jesus, in verse 16, commissions Paul. Okay, Paul, get up on your feet. Come on, let's go. Let's get going. I got a job for you to do. I'm commissioned you. We need to be, you're going to be a witness to me. There's four results that happen when our eyes are opened. We turn from darkness to light. We turn from the power of Satan to God. We receive forgiveness of sins, and we receive an inheritance with the saints. What a beautiful package that is when our eyes are opened and we turn to God. This can only happen by the power of God. Supernatural intervention of risen Jesus turned Paul from dark to light. This whole auditorium group of people are hearing this. How many out there became believers because of that testimony? So he gives his testimony and talks about the risen Savior. Um, kicking against the goad, fighting against God. It was a losing battle. Stand up now. Stand up. I've got a job for you to do, to be a witness to the Gentiles. And here he is in verse 19. Therefore, King Agrippa, I am not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I declare to you that I'm doing exactly what God told me to do. In verse 21, he lays it out. For this reason... The Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me because of that reason. Because God told him to be a witness to him on what's going on. That's what they're accusing me of. So, to be the light both to people and to the Gentiles. That was the summary then of Paul's ministry there between verses 19 and 23. So, there it is. This whole auditorium heard, heard the testimony of Paul, the miraculous testimony of Paul. And they knew what he was like before. Many of those people had heard about him, or maybe back 20 years ago they had actually witnessed Paul being like that. So they knew. And now he's doing this. How else can you explain something like that? But Paul plainly states that he is unswervingly committed to God. He's been obedient to that call. So what's their response? It takes a response. You've got to do something with that when you hear that truth of the gospel. You've got to do something with it. You can accept it. You can reject it. You can walk away from it. That's a form of rejection. So what happens here with these guys? Festus, of course, is just going out of his mind and shouts out and aloud, Paul, you're, you're out of your mind. You're, you're a learned man, you're an educated man, but you are out of your mind. What are you speaking about? You know, people that are dead don't raise a game. What, what is going on here? And Paul responds to him and says, I am speaking true and rational words. Oh, there's nothing ever so more true. And it's rational words because it's God that's doing it. Okay. But King Agrippa, he turns to him. I think that was his real target there, Paul. And he asked King Agrippa in verse 27, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. 
I know you believe the prophets. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, you persuade me to be a Christian. And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that none, not only you, but all, also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Paul was more free than any of those people in that room that were not believers. He directly challenges Agrippa. But look where Agrippa is. He's sitting between Festus, who just called Paul mad, and Bernice, who's his sidekick, have, you know, incestuous relations with her. What's she, what's, what's she going to think, you know? Or what's he going to think? And, you know, here I am, the king, and how can I possibly bow to, a, you know, a, this risen Jesus, you know? I mean, he was, in a, he was in a tough corner there. It got too much for Agrippa. It got too personal, too close. And what does he do? He stands up. In verse 30, the king arose, he rose, the governor and Bernice also, and those who were seating with him, and they withdrew themselves and said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So he wants to go to Caesar. He's going to go to Caesar. He's going to go off to Rome. That's exactly where Paul wanted to go to Rome. But man, did he score a big one in that auditorium that day. Think of the people that took what he said and God lit a flame in them. And they just started just to spread from that in the Gentile world. Um, Only God can orchestrate things like that. God's plan is being fulfilled. Paul's desire of his heart to go visit the church in Rome. It was a win situation for Christians today. And those Jews that wanted him dead, this backfired on them, didn't it? It backfired on them. God's plan to spread the gospel will not be stopped. Light prevails. I've used this illustration before. If we have, oh, here's a box. I won't tell you what's in there. (laughs) Um, It's always up here, though. This room has light in it, doesn't it? Has light. Let me reverse a little bit. If we were to go down into a cave, down, when you get down there and the cave guy, the tourist director, whatever he's called, I don't know what he's called. He says, okay, everyone turn off your lights and turn off your phone so the little light doesn't go and flashlight batteries. And, and when you're down there, it's so dark. You can't even see your hand in front of your face. Have you ever experienced that, how, how thick the darkness is? And then your guide, all of a sudden, he'll light a match or a lighter or something. It's like, whoa, slag tights, slag mites. It just really pushes the dark away. So knowing that, this room has light in it. There's light. In this box is dark. There's no lights in this box. So if I open it up, what do you think is going to happen? Think the dark's going to come out and snuff out the light? What happens? The light goes into the box. They do not want the light of the gospel to spread. I'm going to close with this. Now is not the time for us to sit by and twiddle our thumbs and 
you know, just, you know, go about not just in our own little world. Now is the time that we need to stand up and be bold and let people know we're believers. Because as the world starts falling apart, people will need to know who they can go to for answers. Yes. 